Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology, and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Really excited for our guest today, Mr. Peter Coyote. Peter Coyote is an award-winning actor, author, director, screenwriter, and narrator who has worked with some of the world's most distinguished filmmakers. In 2011, he was ordained as a Zen Buddhist priest, and in 2015 received transmission from his teacher, making him an independent Zen teacher. Coyote was a prominent influence in the Haight-Ashbury culture of the 1960s, with figures such as Janis Joplin and Gary Snyder. He's also an engaged champion of multiple causes, including being on the advisory board for Project Coyote, a national non-profit organization whose mission is to promote compassionate conservation and coexistence between people and wildlife. Recognized for his narration work, he narrated the PBS series, The Pacific Century, winning an Emmy Award as well as eight Ken Burns documentaries, including The Roosevelt's, for which he won a second Emmy. He was the on-camera voice of Oscar for the 72nd Academy Awards and the narrator for the 2002 Winter Olympics opening ceremony. He has acted in more than 130 films, starring in such features as E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Aaron Brockovich, our honored, our honored is of is several books, including Sleeping Where I Fell, The Rain Man's Third Cure, and a collection of poetry entitled Tongue of Tongue of Today, Peter Coyote abandoned books in conversation about his new book, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha, Masks, Meditation, and Improvised Play to Induce Liberated States. States. A wonderful book. Developed through 40 years of research and personal study, Coyote's of mask-based improv problems and Zen practices is specifically designed to create an ego-suppressed state akin to the mist of the experiences of meditation or the spiritual rituals of kinkadelics. Through his work, we also see how malleable the self can be and come to realize that the world is more magical and vaster than we thought possible. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you can visit his website, which is petercoyote.com. Banyan Books community, join me in a warm welcome.
for Peter Kaiser. Peter, thanks so much for being here. Ross, thanks. It makes me laugh to hear those introductions because they're so out of date. Oh, uh -huh. I've done 160 films. I've done 12, 12 cans. Um, I, the I, one thing I would think you'd mentioned was that I've been, was one of the two and two LM non-native advisors to Leonard Peltier since before we went to prison. Yeah. And, uh, 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 I've been involved in a lot of native issues and, uh, and I was glad to hear you to hear site, site ground that we all walk on and, uh, stole the least we can do is acknowledge it. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and that's actually one, actually, uh, one of the themes running through this book, which is a fantastic book. You touch on, on, uh, I mean, Tonto, you've got this parable that alternates through each chapter. Uh, as you're giving the description, description and exercises around the last games and the different Zen meditation practices and the Buddhist uh, way of seeing and thinking, there's this parable and, and Tonto is one of the characters. Is, what was, was that, was there a reason that you chose the Lone Ranger and Tonto and your connection with, with the native peoples? Is that part of it? Well, so, so there's the, a lot of heavy lifting in the book. There's a, a lot of these exercises are kind of lost leaders for Buddhism. If I take people into my classes and I ask them, ask them certain kind of safe ways with exercises and ways of moving that they're not used to, they run up into the edges of the self. They say, oh, that's not me, or I don't like that, or oh, yeah, I real, feel real comfortable there. And after doing that for, now, for four or five hours, if I put a mass on you and hold a mirror, mirror up to you, it's never failed in 40 plus years of classes that your personality will exit and your mind will assemble some character from the self you see in the mask in the mirror. So when your self goes, so does your self-consciousness, your second guessing, your self-criticism, all that stuff. You get about 10 free form minutes, cold soldier to experience a kind of, um, uh, ego-free environment. And I use that as a lost leader for Zen practice saying, so if you want to recover that, if you want to have access to that, you need to learn how to meditate and you need to learn something of Buddha's description of reality. So when I was putting the book together, I thought, well, I'd like to have something a little more amusing than just in philosophy and exercise to talk about. About the Lone Ranger and Tonto, and I thought how he was like the epitome of a white man in like the 1950s when I was growing up. He represented only goodness. He had no contradictory aspects to his character. You know, he never killed anybody. And you know, Tonto in Spanish means stupid. So it's just inconceivable today that you take a native person and you'd name him stupid on television. But as a kid, me, it was me, Tonto always knew what was happening. So, so these guys are riding around the desert, desert. Their script writer died. They've been out of work. They're fat and out of shape. They're lost. And they see the Buddha camped under a big cottonwood tree. <clears throat> and they go over and he hops up and he takes such good care of their horse and finds out that silver's lame and he wraps his in comfrey and stuff. That the Lone Ranger decides he must be must serve of a very very wealthy man, and, and they'll just hang around and wait till he comes back. Maybe they can hit him up for a loan or invest in a movie or something. And of course, 
the Buddha sees this right away. And Tanto sees the Buddha. He kind of knows who he is, but, you know, he sort of starts out as the sidekick. And through the course of this thing, each of them have human problems, just normal human problems, greed, hate, and delusion that comes with, the, with having a body. So the Lone Rangers are also compounded because he was a star. He was a white man. He was like, had all of this privilege that he never saw. So little by little, the Buddha tricks them into doing a big job for him and it's going to make them rich. And uh, each one gradually learns how to meditate and gradually has some kind of enlightenment experience. And Tanto is the first and he just, they wake up one morning and his headband is on the ground and his, his prints are leading back to Mohawk country. And the Lone Ranger is flipped out. He's like, this is my this musty sidekick. Where, where is he? You know. So it was a way of putting a little fun in between, between all the philosophizing and the exercises. It's really, really well done. done. No, I figured if Sherman Alexi write about right white people, people could write about Tonto. <laughs> you also have a connect, you that quote, uh, quote uh, Carlos Castaneda and, and uh, Don Juan, uh, quite, quite, quite about the book. What's your connection with Castaneda's work? Well, so I studied those books like they were the Bible for almost 20 years, and I learned almost every practice that you could practice from those books. And at the, at the monastery where I lived, the only non-Buddhist books you were allowed to read were, were Don Juan books. And there were many conditions of meditative states that were recognizable from these early indigenous Yaqui descriptions. But then later on, I actually met Melos, and he asked me to uh, do the voiceover. So two of his two books, and I did. And um, he did something to me that made me realize real, maybe he was going to take me on as a student. And I was really thrilled. It was really important to me. And uh, then after I'd done the second book, he died. And um, I had this, there were certain exercises I just never did anymore because they were too uh scary get out the notion that if i got logged out somebody would be there would be dig me out but he was a real long before zen practice he was a real um uh guiding force in my life wonderful now back to matt when when you were a young man you moved to san francisco and you joined the san francisco mime troop you describe in the book your your experience the first time you put on the mask on the pantalone. Yeah. What happened to you there? Well, first of all, I got to tell your friends and your listeners that mime is not pantomime. Like pantomime, Adam's Marcel Marcel. It's guys pretending to a window there and creating the illusion of object, object space. But mime is much more like Charlie Charlie where you stick two forks and potatoes and you use them as little feet and, and you, an umbrella could be a rifle or could be, could be a, you know, a sailboat. So the, the, the San Francisco mime troupe used 17th century Italian Commedia dell'arte, which was street theater. And it was rude and sexy and vulgar and used stock characters, make fun of the rich and the wealthy and the pompous. And the masked characters were these stock characters, and we rewrote them, them to talk about uh, contemporary American political issues. 
And we did our plays out in the public where the people were. We assembled a little stage and made music. And we had great hot women with us. And we made our living passing the hat. The hat. And so the first time I put pantalone on, I'd been exercising, working out. They gave me a gay character who was this old miser. He was really a terrible, mean-spirited guy. And I put this mask on him, I looked on him in the mirror, and boy, I was just gone. And it was like my id, id was a colander suddenly, or my ego was a colander, and my id just leaked through it. And I realized that I could do anything as this guy. There was nothing that this guy wouldn't do. My first line ever on stage, which were just improvised, is I had this really whiny little pig of a daughter and uh, I introduced her to the audience. Also, Pantalone had a Yiddish accent, like them, grandparents. And I introduced my daughter to the audience by saying, I love my mother. I want to introduce you to my daughter. I love my daughter because she killed my wife in childbirth. <laughs> and I, I knew I could get away with it. You know, it was completely <laughs> tasteless. Anyway, I sat on that experience for a long time. And then later on, when I was in living in a monastery and doing zazen every day, they asked me what I teach acting to the children of the priests. And we had so much fun, some of the priests wanted to study. And all of a sudden, I started experimenting again with masks. And I began to notice that other people could have this experience of getting out of their own way. And that's what I call those classes, is I teach getting out of your own way. And there, you know, the self, our personality, is like a tangerine floating in floating vast, vast of space. And if you get outside the skin of that tangerine, your spinal telephone is plugged into every possibility. I mean, it's bigger, vaster than anything you can imagine. And that's where the real genius and inspiration comes from. You know, Bob Dylan doesn't know how he writes songs. He may perfect them. He's a craftsman. He's careful. But the inspiration comes from someplace else. And it's the same for any artist. So Pantalone was like my, my experience. Even, well, no, I had LSD by that time. So, but but the difference between but psychedelics, psychedelics is that when you take acid, it's like, being flown to the Grand the Canyon in a helicopter. You know, it's awesome. The vista is phenomenal. It's blind, but you got flown there in a helicopter and you can't get back unless you have the helicopter. But if you walk there, if you get there, get meditating, you leave belief crumbs for yourself so you can get back and get, and you've done it cold sober. And so in my classes, when people have these experiences, they realize they're cold sober. And so they've slipped out of their ego. You know, the ego is a guide. It's not, it's not an error. It would never have survived evolution if it didn't if it help us. Helps us brush our teeth and cross with the green and take good care of ourselves. But over a lifetime of being told who we are or implying who we are from the way from the people greet us, it turns into warden. And it limits our freedom. It limits our possibilities. It stops being such a friendly guide. And so I teach people how to escape for a little bit. Give all kinds of great exercises. I really like the, the red lot game. Can you tell us how that works? Yeah, I can. 
So this is one of the ways when I talk about stressing people and showing them the edge of the self. So the exercise is that you imagine that there's a red dot, like a laser that you can shoot anywhere on your body. body. And so, so when I first start, I put it on their nose and I have people be led around by the nose and they just completely exaggerated. And I do that for four or four minutes and I start cataloging their feelings because their feelings are different. Some people feel like birds. Some people feel like rodents. Some people, some feel nosy. Some people feel offensive. And then we do it again and I have them pull it back a little bit, bit. So it's not quite so exaggerated. And then I have them do it just enough so they could go out in the street in the set way and walk around and see how, see that how it changes the way they feel internally. And then I, and then the dot of their chin. And we start, start way out when we pull it back until gradually we're like this and then put it on your chest and your stomach and your groin and your knees. And each of those placements will raise different, different emotions and different feelings and different associations. So if you're interested in acting, act, that's a little catalog. You're going to go in. If you find out that by raising your chin, your chin a bit, you feel incredibly confident. And you go into your job interview that way, nobody knows what you're doing exactly, but you can be responsible for your own moods. And so by the time you've bounced against the edges of yourself for a morning, there are other exercises where I make you respond without thinking. There's a circle game we play where we say we're at a rhythm and the rhythm is unstoppable. And some, and they will do a four beat line. Like I went downtown and I stole a car. And everybody goes, do run, do run, run, do run, run. Then the next person has to start on the beat. And then, and then people get comfortable with that, with that way the do way the run runs. And, and we start to add rhyme schemes. So the second guy has to rhyme with the first. The third guy starts a new rhyme. And so if you can't do it, you have to go blah, 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 blah. You look like an idiot. So it forces people to leap in with, in with thinking. They're afraid of exposing psychological secrets or something, you know. They when I went downtown and I kissed a man. Oh my god! You know? <laughs> so by the so time we've done that for a couple hours, people are really loose. They've found out it's a safe way to be, and it's funny and it's supportive. But you've been really stretching your identity. You've really been pushing it against 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 time, against not knowing, and. That's those are the warm ups putting you in a mask. One of the things you talk about is uh, per, these personal identifiers. You say uh, in chapter five, you say explore spurring the identifiers by which people know and express themselves, such as self presentation, posture, intention, intention, and a variety of games designed to illuminate habitually stuck areas. So, what your point what you're doing is these, these personal identifiers. Now, how does that relate to the Buddhist way of thinking of think the self? Well, it's not in contradiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, Buddha never said whether the self existed or not. What he did say, because that's a death end. What he did say, say it's not fixed. So most people, if you ask them, they have an idea that there's something in them that's them that it's solid, it's graspable, 
Maybe it's a little tiny them behind their forehead, or maybe it's a walnut with their name on it tucked under their liver. But from the time you were born, everybody who spoke to you was describing the world to you. Look at mommy. What a nice cheek. Look at the kitty. Look at the birdie. By the time we're five or six, we can run the film of the world that we've been taught without help. And so from so time on, we exist within the culture as it's been handed down to us. And one of the things we get is, is this idea of a self. You are a naughty boy. You know, you know, what's the you? Well, you don't exactly know, but you know, you don't, you better watch it. And so over a lifetime, we groom, groom we shape this you. We imply what it's like from the way people respond to us. We imply from things we think that could very, could well very wrong. And from those ideas, we have identifiers. Our posture will reflect whether we think we're, you know, kind of no good and we'd rather not be noticed or whether we're incredibly proud and we can't, and we can't to take charge, whether our clothes are dirty and sloppy, whether we're trying to look wealthy. Because if you think that yourself, yourself separate from the rest of the universe. We're nothing more than a little P against the immensity of the universe. And everything becomes a strategy to uh, deal with the terror of disappearing. But in fact, we come from an endless blade of human beings. Those human beings have never been separate from iron, from sunlight, from water, from from mums in the soil that nourish their food, food from other people who make their clothes or their weapons or their grow, you know, grow. It's like from one point of view, yeah, you're over there and I'm over here. We have this sort of separate identity, but from the from picture, we're like relaxed on the body of a dog. Everything is a thing connected. So the reason the reason that Buddhists talk all the time about emptiness, they mean empty of self. There's nothing in you that corresponds to an organ that makes yourself. So that's the good news because it means that almost everything is alterable. It's not like you have an armature, like a sculpture that's bent or distorted. So when we say things like, oh, I always do that. All we're, all we're describing is a habit. We're not describing the way you have to be. So. All these things come up in these classes and in these exercises. And then the liberate, liberate thing is that if you, have a, if you have a bad habit, you can change it. It takes work, but you can change it. Change it. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the pieces of work that you do is you learn how to meditate and sit in undistracted silence with your body, body mind without distraction and get to know it. To know the mind to be the mind. You're not trying to shut it down. Death will do that. You're just letting the mind be the mind and you're putting your attention on your posture and your bring your thing and you're not letting yourself be jerked around by the mind. And then the mind's no problem. The mind is just an, a, a gland that produces images and thoughts and nonsense. When you need it, you let the clutch out and engage your awareness with it. With it. But when you don't need it, you just put the clutch in and shift your awareness someplace else. What's the problem? I believe uh, Gary Snyder played a big role in your life. And uh, there's a quote uh, from a book where you talk about him when, when you first met him and you said, 
It required some years before I was able to pinpoint the most compelling and elusive quality of Gary's personality. He was, the, he was the person I had ever met who appeared to be evenly developed across every dimension of his life. I resolved to learn something about that. For those who don't know Gider, maybe you can tell them a bit about who he was and the influence that, that Adam had in your life. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I grew up, um, uh, I was born in 1941. So by the 50th, um, the Cold War was started. Carthyism and anti-communist disputes were starting. Um, my people were Jews who were not yet allowed to be white. I couldn't join the country club. I couldn't go swimming with my friends. And so there was a lot that I was not so happy with. I had communists and socialists that were relatives. And I heard the government lying about them. You know, these guys were just labor organizers and teachers and people looking for a common break for working people. They were not agents of Stalin, you know, stuck into the culture. They were like Joe Rogan and you know, the bombasts on Fox News. And um, the, so when I was about 14, I discovered the Beats. And I started reading these guys because these were adults who were as critical of my culture as I was, but they were adult. And they gave me references and reading and information. Sort of first among equals was Gary Snyder. Uh, Jack Kerouac, who wrote On the Road, also wrote a whole book about Gary Snyder called The Dharma Bums, in which the lead character was called Jaffe Ryder. And Gary was a champion uh, freestyle mountain climber. He had lived for nine years in Japan in a Zen monastery as, a, as the assistant to the teacher. And uh, later on in the 60s, he had come back from Japan and he was writing environmental tracks that were being duplicated and passed out through the Haight-Ashbury. And they were very, very instructive. And I thought, and I was introduced to him through a friend of his named his Welch, another poet who was my roommate, lived on the commune with me when his woman threw him out. And um, he brought Gary around. And Gary came in this new kind of Volkswagen camper, and we were this dirt poor, hard scrabble, hippie commune living without electricity with a five gallon hot water heater for 20 people. And uh, I thought, well, who was this bourgeois asshole? You know, you know. So I sat down, Gary gave me some peanuts and butter. And uh, he seemed completely, completely interested for my revolutionary bona fides, you know, telling him all the far out things that I'd done. I was just waiting for him to recognize me as an enlightened Zen master. And then we'd discuss things as peers. That didn't happen. But he just, but he kept looking at me. Like he was trying to figure out who is this guy. And that look really unsettled metal. I mean, it, it went right into in bone marrow. And when he left, I thought, I got to get to know who this guy is. So I started going up to his place up in the Sierras. I grew up on a farm. I'm pretty handy. And I'd help him cut brush, brush logs and do stuff. Gradually, we became friends. And I became the beneficiary of this vast, encyclopedic, organized knowledge that he had. And one of the things that most impressed me was, was his life. I mean, he had built this beautiful house up in the Sierras. It was kind of a cross between a Japanese farmhouse and an Indian longhouse. 
all cut from local timbers. He'd, uh, he'd assembled a bamboo of Zen carpenter carps to put it together. And it had everything you needed, but there was nothing, nothing showy or grand. It was 900 square feet. When we came, everybody had to pump a hundred pumps on a pump to pump water, water up a, a holding tank so that it could, so that it back down by gravity, grab the water that you'd use. And so I saw in this house was the byproduct of nine years of meditation where he had thought through everything. Every, every tool had a tool to rule air it and was right next to it. And, and so what I meant by being evenly developed is I was certainly unevenly developed. I was really smart, smart. I knew I was smart. People told me I was smart, but I was using a lot of heroin. I was living not a particularly honorable life. Um, I had bouts of kind of murderous temper and all sorts of stuff going on. And most people kind of, kind of like if you're an American, you have a great bicep, bicep, America will say, that's a fantastic bicep. Let's brand that bicep. We'll open the chain of supplement stores. We'll get you a gym. You can go into training technology. You can sell sweats, yoga, yogas, Pilates. Zen does a little different. Zen would say, nice bicep. That'll take care of itself. Let's get the rest of the body up to that tenacity. That would be an example of even development. Uneven development would be taking this one talent and pushing it as far as it could go, which is why you see so many young musicians overdosing and dying and going crazy and unable to handle fame because they have this talent and the audience needs all sorts of qualities into these talent that they don't, don't have. And they're not balanced and able to deal with their life. So Gary was, I think of Gary as my first Buddhist teacher even though we didn't have a formal relationship. But when I was ordained or as a priest, uh, we have these kind of, I'll, I'll show you just a second. second. We All have right. kind, of, kind of bibs that we wear, which are miniature Buddhist robes. It's called a raksu. And a Buddhist robe is a really intricate, intricate thing that's put together with many, many panels. It's so, so, the patterns in a rice paddy. I don't know. Don't know if you can see it. That's what it looks like. And then on the back, it will have, you know, names and dates and stuff from your teacher. And so Gary, uh, although he was not my teacher, my teacher left the space on my first Roxu for Gary to sign it. And that was my priest Roxu, which is black. And this one is brown. This was this was when you get transmitted. And um, this was made for me by a friend, and I just, I wear it a lot, a lot like it. Beautiful. Thanks for showing that. That's really cool. So the secret garments, it's like the, it's like, it's like the uh, Mormon underwear. <laughs> what you were, what you were talking, talking about, it, it struck a chord. It reminded me, reminded me one of the games you talk about, you call the naked maker game. And, uh, and uh, you talk about self-consciousness and shame and your own child, own child imaginings of how you wanted to change yourself and take on the qualities of various friends. Then you talk about you talk about this mirror game. Can you tell us a bit about that game? And then, and then you also talk about our about fashion culture with, with, per, with protractiveness. So I'm wondering if you can dovetail those two. So 
when I was a kid, um, my, both my parents were very hyper vigilant. They were, you know, my dad was a kind of amazing guy, not, not such not a great dad, but an amazing man. He went to MIT when he was 15 years old. He was the, the sparring partner of Philadelphia, Jack O'Brien, who was a who was light heavyweight champion. He could multiply five and six digit numbers in his head and everything he touched turned to money until it didn't. And he lost everything. He died 20 million below broke. But in my childhood, both he and my mom were always watching to make sure I was okay. And any little bad habit or nervousness had to be stamped out or corrected. My mom read Fred Boyd like she read the Bible. And um, um, I, I always felt like there was something wrong. They were always angry. My dad was always angry. Um, uh, uh, I thought my name was shit for brains till I was 16. And so I, I was 10, 11, 12. I would, oh, and he would always have this threat. He'd say, uh, I'm going to snap your fucking legs and send you to reform school. And I didn't know what reform school was. It sounded bad. It sounded like maybe where they took us apart part, and put them back together in a way that would please their parents. So I used to imagine that I could remake myself. And I would look at friends, you know, like uh, this guy had a really handsome face. And this guy had a really slim athletic body. And this guy had a lot of humor, and, you know. And I just would imagine that I pieced together something that was b better than I was. So it never occurred to me, these were all ideas and all things that I had implied about myself by the way people treated me. And my dad was very violent. He, uh, he, he knocked me out in my first boxing lesson when I was six. And my mom threw on such a scene that from then on, he gave me wrestling lessons. And I think his fear was that I was this sweet, poetic kid and that I was going to get eaten by the world and that it was as just as he, he had to toughen me up. And it took me many, many years to come to terms with violence and, and my own anger at, at bullies and stuff like that. So the naked mirror game is not actually a game. It's more like an assessment and it involves, uh, it involves standing in front of a mirror naked and just looking at your body and look and let your judgments, judgment, you know, just think every time, every guy takes his shirt off in the movies, he's a spectacular specimen of a human being. You know, of course he has nothing else to do, but work six hours a day in a gym and get ready for that scene. But most of it, you know, my idea of idea size is uh, reading a heavier, heavy so if body doesn't correspond to these images and especially girls, right? Because in this media age, you get social status dependent on your beauty and your attractiveness. I just, I saw a picture of five 13 year old girls, girls who are friends of my daughter's best friend. They're the daughters of my daughter, my daughter, my best friends. And I mean, they, they all looked 17. They were drop, drop gorgeous, dressed like they were in their twenties. And they all somehow understood that desirability and attractiveness was their calling card. 
and they're good girls. They're sweet kids. You know, they don't even know they're dressing like whores because they don't know how the billions of advertisements they've already seen have shown them those options that the prettiest girls are with the handsomest guys drinking the best beer or wearing the best t-shirt. So to stand naked in front of a mirror is to come to terms with what your body really is and to, and to explore those areas of shame. You have a little pooch in your, in your belly. You have big tits or small tits, a big cock or a small cock. How do you, how do you feel about it? What does what really mean? And to, and to catalog and interrogate those feelings and, and track the ideas behind them. Because the ideas imprison us and the ideas take our freedom away and the ideas make us vulnerable to teasing and criticism and bullying and all sorts of stuff. So, so one of the few things that I couldn't, couldn't class was one of the advantages of writing this in a book. But I do other exercises with people where I work on stage fright. Uh, we do that dressed, but it's done in sort of the sort of the way. Um, if, if I, if I get, if I get, imagine you're sitting on an auditorium and you're addressing a room full of strangers and this induces fears for anxiety in you, I tell you to look in the first three or four rows, rows. there's somebody in there that you know, know, that you're afraid of, might be your mother, might be your father, might be an aunt might be a teacher, but somebody that's been in your internal audience for your entire life, judging you, not doing you the benefit of the doubt, going for it. And then I ask, then I, how, how old are they? And the reason that I do that is because very often they're the age you were when you were somewhere between six and 12. So the next, so the next in the exercise says, Roll them forward to the present day, their present age. Are they still intimidating? If they're intimidating, turn the picture into black and white. If it's still intimidating, move them into the back of the room. If it's still intimidating, send them into a lobby and put them in a brown paper bag and put them on a bus. You've carried them around long enough and you've let yourself be bullied by this. And I can tell you any number of people that I cured of stage fright, I mean, by their admission, Michael McClure, a, a wonderful poet, friend of Gary Snyder's, would shake, shake hard when he had to read the readings. It looked like he had palsy. And we did and we had exercise. So the next thing he sat on the road with Manzimanka, who was the piano player in the doors, and just, just traveled around reading his poems to jazz. So these are all, you know, mental tricks we play on ourselves that diminish our strength and power and pet, knowing about and illuminating and aerating can really help us. Thank you. Now, before we get to our audience questions, there's one, one thing I wanted to ask you that it, it has a personal element for me. You talk about the emptiness teachings in, in Buddhism and some of the, the possible pitfalls or dangers around that. Oh, yes. And I had a friend, uh, who, an old friend, old who I hadn't seen in a few years, but who committed suicide recently. He was known as a bit of a nihilist. You know, this 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 done some study and came to the conclusion that you know nothing really, really nothing really matters in yes. the end. 
I'm wondering if you can comment on on these pitfalls and these dangers when it's not integrated with like a as on one one you says or you half with heart. I will. Yeah, I'm so, that, sorry to start that. It's so disappointing. So the guy made a fundamental mistake. So remember earlier I said there are, there are two ways two ways ridiculous to pretend that you and I are not separate integers. You know, if I stick a pin in my cheek, you're not going to flinch. So that's one half of reality. That's, let's just call it, that's the relative. And we judge ourselves relative to other humans. Am I tall? Am I short? Am I fat? Am I fat thin? Am I talented? Am I not? Because everything is in relationship. Then there's the holistic view where we look and I say, okay, say, okay, not separate from oxygen, sunlight, food, water, Pollen insects, right? So each of them has a shadow. Each of them has a dangerous side. The relative side leads us to believing that we're the most important thing in the world. In the world. That we privilege everything we think and feel and want. And we don't realize that we're living within a bubble of our own, own uh, creation. And we forget that we're living in, in all of it. And we wouldn't be here if all of it wasn't supporting our life. And so we so can, oh, the simplest example is, you know, we, uh, you know, we hunt wealth and power and things like that at the expense of others. And we run over, run over, we do it as a nation, we do it as a country, we do it as, as organized sports teams, whatever it is. We identify with our ego in that. Well, the big picture has, has a problem too. And the problem with the big picture is that it loses track of the value of the smallest integer. A bumblebee is a miracle. It's not just a little tiny thing. It's a miracle. There's no accounting for it. A housefly washing its little face is a miracle, right? So when you lose track of that, the value of each unrepeatable integer of reality, you can be like Mao Zedong and star 25 million people to death because you're building, building big picture. So and Stalin, who did another 20 million, trying to change the agriculture to create a communist world. So one of the reasons that all religions steep everything in a kind of moral oak is so we don't look, lose track of that relativity. That Buddhist doesn't study nothing matters. It says everything matters. And so and when you're going to build a shopping center, yes, maybe you have to take into account it's the last refuge of a butterfly or salamander. If you do that, you can maybe moderate it or do it so that can set five or put it in another place. If you never ask the question, you're saying none of this matters, right? So your friend who handled himself actually privileged his own thoughts over the miracles of the world that was surrounding him. He thought he'd figured it out and he figured himself right off out of life. Out of life. And it's a terrible mistake and it's a way of misunderstanding Buddhism. In early Buddhism, there was a there was belief that this that this you know so Buddhism grew in Hinduism. It grew out of Hindu culture. 
And to survive in Hindu culture, it had to gift wrap itself and a lot of the attributes of Hinduism. Just when it went to China, it had to accept Confucianism and Taoism and wrap itself in some of the gift wrapping so it would be recognizable. Then it went to Japan and it had to wrap itself in Shinto and some of the Japanese practices. Well, one of the one Hindu beliefs is this belief in life after life after life after life. Buddha didn't talk about reincarnation. That's something that was that was created that kind of came along with the gift wrapping being of Hinduism. And so the feeling was the purpose of enlightenment was to get us to off the track of birth and death. Well, birth and death occurs in occurs instant. That's what they were talking about. They weren't talking about getting get this life as quickly as you could and never coming back. What kind of a religion has as its goal ending the life that life generated it? So that's a really deep misunderstanding and misreads. So when you meditate, every thought comes up is an unrepeatable experience. You are an unrepeatable experience. And to end your life is tantamount to saying, I consider a point of view more important than the existence of dolphins, butterflies, mountain range, ranges, set, lovely girl, girl, you know, honey. I mean, it's just, it's a closing down. It's a myosomia that engender, gender passion. But it's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha did not teach Nietzscheism. The Buddha taught how to have a happy, meaningful life on almost nothing. Before he gave his talks, he went out and begged his daily meal. He walked the walk. And then he came back and he taught people how to be happy in the world with a bowl and a row, row and just what you need to sustain yourself. My Buddhist tradition is a secular tradition. So I live in this world. I have children. I had two wives. I had two houses. I had jobs I had to do. do. I had a lot of contradictory claims, a lot of things I didn't care about. My task was to learn how to be happy in that world and to moderate the harm that I did by being greedy. You know, I could say, well, I'm going to lie on nothing, but my nine-year-old rolled a certain kind of sneaker because that was what was important in his world. It meant a lot to him. So I'm not going to put my philosophy on him until he's old enough to understand it. So this stuff takes interrogation, not believing what you think and sitting there and, and just watching until you begin to understand your own narratives and your own descriptions of the world, world you're just descriptions. And your poor friend fell under the influence of a description. It's like mistaking the map for the territory. Do you see what I mean? I do. Yes. Thank you, Peter. Sure. Thank you sure. very much. We've got some great questions coming in here from our audience. Great. The first one is from Donna, who says, being an indigenous person, Mason B, I never knew the word Tonto meant, meant stupid Spanish. Mind blown about that one. With that thread and knowing how socialization occurs to the general public about demonizing indigenous peoples continues to occur, what are your thoughts about incorporating Buddhist beliefs to indigenous ways of knowing and being. Well, I think that I think that Buddhist philosophy 
is pretty harmonious with indigenous belief systems, at least all the ones that I know. Um, I have a lot of friends who are Haidas up there. I've spent a lot of time with those people, the Karak people, Yurak people, Shoshone, Shoshone people down here. Um, native in the, the indigenous problem is the white problem, is the, is the, is the belief system of this white people of Christianity, of believing that is the most important, important only, only religion on earth. earth. Jesus, Jesus never said he was the only son of God. He said he was a son of God. He didn't say you say it. He didn't say native people it. Our bicameral legislature is based on the two how-tos of the earth, the way, which Thomas Jefferson studied. That's why, that's why we have sent a sentence down here. So, in many cases, like this race problem, it's a white problem. It's white people who've had privileges and advantages, which have most of all been invisible to them. And right now, there's a really embarrassing movement in the United States where people are censoring school books because they think it's going to make their children uncomfortable to find out that their grandparents, great-grandparents were slurs or bigots. But that's also depriving them of the opportunity to wrestle, wrestle with being a human being and figuring out how to be on this world with other people. And I guarantee you that the educational systems of China, Japan, uh, Shanghai, Indonesia, most of the world are building and training their children. The Brits and all the European nations and Scandinavians are training their children to excel. And we are training our children to remain stupid and blinded by prejudice. So one of the things that Buddha did was he, he violated all the caste systems. He admitted women. He admitted untouchable people. He admitted people from every tribe. And that was the organization that he practiced. And that was called the Sangha, the followers of Buddha. Buddha. So... One of the things that attracted me about Buddhism was, you know, the Christians are pretty good about taking care of Christians. The Jews are pretty good about taking care of Jews. The Sioux are pretty, are pretty about taking care of Sioux. But, but the Buddhists want to take care of everyone. There are no boundaries and no limits. And I thought that seems like something that's appropriate for a global reality. We have to learn to get over our differentiations of people by race, skin color, eyes, culture. I mean, if every if every culture on earth has the same definition of God, the creator, you know, the initiator, the beginner, what does it matter what language they would call it? I mean, if God I mean, made all the people, he made all the vocabularies. He made all the different names. So to fight with somebody because he calls it Allah, Allah. And he calls it Kokantanka, and he calls it Jesus, Jesus. he calls it God. God. It's just stupid. So Buddhism just sidestepped all. Stepped all. I hope that's an answer, Donna. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Donna, for your question. This one is from, from L, just uh, initials, initials L. The question says, anthropologist F.C. Bailey Research included the clue we're up to triple different masks during our day. Without putting on actual masks, but by adjusting to the expectations of people around us, 
Acting allows you to do that as well. <clears throat> Would you please share with us why you became an act and how it differs from being a practicing priest? Thank you. Thank you. Wow, what a good question. So I became an act. I'd been an actor in college. I was looking around. I was part of the black turtleneck sweater, camel cigarette poet guys. And a drama teacher in my college gave me a challenge. He half in the bag all the time. And he sat down at the poet's table and he said, I bet it's never occurred to you that drama is an article of examination of something of great public import played out on the stage. And I said, no, I never thought of that. So he challenged me to come audition for him. So I did. And he put together this little this company in the college. He said, the basketball team uses his A team. I'm going to use mine. And he made this little company. And so I did plays every year and it was interesting and challenging. And then I was in the mime troupe and then the mime troupe led me to this group, the diggers, where we wanted to make more radical changes to the culture. And we didn't want to just put on a stage talking about it. And so by the end of the counter counter, I'd wound up with like a 10 year heroin habit. I was a single father. My daughter's mother had run away. My dad had died below, I broke, I had nothing. And Gary Snyder uh, was appointed by the governor, governor of California to run the state of the state and he called me to help him. And um, the next year I was elected chairman and we ran, had a great run. We raised the budget from one to $16 million. We made, made art just go into every aspect of the culture, not in terms of producing goods, but in teaching the creative process, teaching how artists are creative, creative solvers and sending them into schools. And if we were going to do a mural, your school, they would, they deal with the problem of discipline just as a byproduct. And it was so successful that I realized that I had sort of transcendence counterculture. I had learned to work with conservative Republicans and Democrats and, and everybody. And I thought, why don't I just try the big board? Why don't I just try the movies? I have to make a living. I was living on, in the counterculture, I'd lived on 2,500 bucks a year for 10 years. And now I had a government poverty job that was giving me $600 a month. So I gave myself five years to try the, the movies. And if it didn't work, I'd do something else. But I got lucky. And I started to, I started to get jobs. And that was, that was good. So acting was interesting. And when you act, you are calling forth all the characters or all the capacities that inside in yourself. You're not exactly pretending. If, if I pretend to be angry, you're going to see I'm angry. You're going to see I'm pretending. And you're going to see that it's not connected to any, any emotion. And it's not until you connect, connect behavior to an emotional truth that audiences feel it and believe it. And the more specific it is to you, to you the more totally they believe they. So at that time I was acting and I was doing this uh, uh, intensive meditation and practicing and sort of going down, going ground zero every day as meditate. And, you know, as an actor, you learn how to control your dials. So, so there's absolutely no difference between me watching a fly walk around the rim of a sugar bowl and my character watch a fly walk around the rim of a sugar bowl. 
But if, if I have to get angry or if I have to come up with some emotion, I have to find something in the situation I can, I can believe. And so the skill of actors is their skill to call their emotional life to enrich what you have to do in the script. For Buddhism, it's a little different. Yes, we all wear these masks. We all go through everything from a heaven realm to, to us beings, to humans, to, to all realms, maybe in the course of a day, maybe in the course of a lifetime. But in Buddhism, we're learning about the awareness that there lies all those things. We're learning about the generative force of the universe, which is just coming over your spinal telephone, which is just generating all this stuff. That's your real identity. And all the other stuff is stuff that's been laid on and put there and, you know, you've gotten used to it. You've never seen outside. But when you, when you meditate for a long time, your ego gets tired. And every once in a while, it'll give up for a little bit. And you get a geek outside of it. And you get to see what's out there. Well, you can't stay out there. You, you couldn't live like that. Like, I mean, our ancestors had been so transfixed by a butterfly, they wouldn't see the saber-toothed tiger hunting them. But when you come back from those little events, it's kind of like seeing a little portion of the moon hidden behind in thick clouds. You know the rest of the mess is there. And you see in the edge of the moon, the rest of the moon. And that's kind of, that's what an enlightenment experience or a Kensho awakening is like. You realize that everything is a letter of, from emptiness. The, the fundamental energy of the ocean is like formlessness. If you think about an ocean and you think about little choppy waves, not big rollers, little choppy waves, each of those waves comes out of the ocean exists in this sim for a little while and then goes back to the ocean. Well, each of those waves could be a human being, could be a leopard, could be a dolphin, could be a mountain range, could be a culture. They come up into form for a while and then they disappear. And when they're in form, we say it's living. And when they go back to the ocean, we say it's dead. But we forget that. And what those little waves forget is they've never not been part of the ocean. Not for an instant. Have they not been part of the ocean? And we forget that as humans because we have this idea that there's a little beetle in us, which is ourselves. I can't tell you where it's located, what color it is, what shape it has, but I think it's separate from everything else because we lost the other half of the equation, which is I've always been always part of the ocean. And I have this time as a wave, dig it. I'm going, I'm back into the ocean, be scrambled up, and we'll be up as another wave. Thank you, Peter. Now, there's one last, one last sort of big question, but before, before that, there's just a, a quick one. Quick one uh, Tanya is uh, asking if you do any workshops. So for, for people to find out if, you, if you're still at least a workshop, work, might participate in. Yeah, the workshops are a little tricky in this age of COVID. But usually what I do is if someone's interested, they can write me at Peter, Peter at, at WD Prod, Prod, P R O D. It stands for Wild Dog Productions. Peter at WD Prod, Prod com, com. And somebody has to get about 12 people together. And uh, all day workshop costs 500 bucks. 
and I've got to fly there. Somebody's got to give me a couch to sleep on. And, you know, we arrange to have lunch or they, everybody packs their lunch. I still do them. Um, I've been doing them doing Zoom uh, during the pandemic. It's not quite as successful. Um, I've had to invent a way into using your cell phone to make a funny face in and take a photograph of it and use that as a mask. But it's not as powerful as the masks themselves. Great. Okay. Thanks. Now, final. Uh, so this is a, a potentially a vast question, but some questions from Don, who says, "What would you say about the polarization in society right now?" Now, well, it's kind of it's kind of, it's like the like hip of the spear of American individualism. When you forget, we're not we're just a wave, we're part of the ocean, part of the nation, we're part of our state, we're part of our community. community. You can't be can't quite so intolerant, you can't be quite so ugly, you can't be quite so violent. violent. So the polarization depends on depends several things. First of all, first of all we have a 24-day propaganda network run by Rupert Murdoch, making a fortune, telling lying lies to stupid people, people. And they're taking it as a And we had a president telling lies to stupid people. And we have, a, we have 20 members in Congress who are allowed to serve Congress despite voting to overthrow a legitimate election. So one of the problems is there's no common source of facts anymore. When I was growing up, there were three networks. Each of the networks had a totally trusted, trusted news commentator, Edward R. Murrow, Walter Cronkite, and Brinkley. And they gave the nation its facts. Fact. So we might, we might agree about what to do about them, but we didn't disagree about the fact. fact. Now with social media, and 150 channels, and every moron with a Twitter account. There's there's a stable basis. They say what's a fact. So my fear is that we could well be heading to sink the war, unless maybe they they put Trump in a jumpsuit and handcuffs. But even there, there were there were 70 million people that voted for him, and the entire Republican Party believes the election was stolen. Stolen. Despite Republicans saying it was a completely safe, safe election. So we have a, a huge impulse toward autocracy, toward fascism, attracting a lot of rich, famous, rich people. It is being well-funded. You know, the Koch brothers are paying to send videos of little local demonstrations in every TV uh, station in the country, trying to make people think this is a mass movement. You know, a few bullies, bullies uh, invade the state house in Michigan with guns and bulletproof vests. And by the times it's been replicated everywhere, every, you think the whole nation is ready to be overthrown. So I don't really know what to do about it. I do I feel that you shouldn't be able to lie to the public air and call yourself news. And in fact, Fox News is now registered as entertainment. But um, it's not good. And it's not going to get better for a long time because 
Now, even the Supreme Court is being sent cells by legislators later south saying, wow, we got these judges. Let's send these and these. They'll vote to vote abortion. Well, that's just test people, the court, the political instrumentality. And once people believe that, you don't even have the law holding us together. So it's going to be a rough road, folks. Thank you, Peter. Folks, we've been in conversation with Andrew Coyote about his latest book and more. The book or the titled Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet Buddha, Masks, Meditation, and Improvised Place to Induce Liberated States. It's a really fantastic book. I highly recommend it. I want to give a big, give a big story, a big story of audience. audience so great. So having people turn up live and, and create this, this community come together online and for submitting your questions. A big thanks to Jacob Steele, who produces Purdue Banyan Books podcast and curates all of Banyan's events. Peter Coyote, Coyote huge pleasure to, to be in conversation. Thank you so much, so much. Thank you all. It's been a pleasure. Give my regards to all of Canada. I may wind up there. <laughs> thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom a podcast for Canadian books and book found. Canada's spiritual and healing resource since Our podcast producer is Jacob's Jail. Joe is edited by Abdul Habani. And I'm host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Bang for Banyas. Or listen on your fin on podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, like, and leave your reviews and comment. Comment. We love. We love from you. Hear from you. For all our live, our lives, events, and books, more, visit visit us at banyanbanyan.com.